the cross. And thank you that you so loved us that before the foundation of the world, you chose us in your son. We thank you, Lord, that you know each one of us that's sitting here this morning better than we know ourselves. You said, Lord, that not one hair from our head falls to the ground without you knowing about it. And you said that the hairs of our head are all numbered. And you said that your thoughts towards us are more in number than all the sand on all the seashores of all the oceans. And so, Lord, as we're here now in this time, we would ask and pray that you, uh, the God of heaven, that you would draw very near to us here, that we wouldn't just simply learn things about you, but that we would learn of you, that we learn who you are, and that we might be able to say, Lord, uh, that we know you. You said, Lord, that that was the highest goal of all of life. And so, Father, as we begin this um, pursuit, this endeavor to uh, build a good foundation and to learn of your ways, we pray that you would help us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit even now, that we would sense that you're the one that's teaching us, Lord, and not just the voice of a man. We ask that you'd open up the scriptures to us, that we would understand the things that you've laid out before us, and that our faith would have a root in our heart that would never die. And so we just put all these things before you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to build a good foundation for the faith of our future. And so please hear our prayer, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, um, you could open it to John chapter 3. And um, I have a, a pen and a pad here. If you if you didn't sign up on the um, sign-up sheet with your email address, just put your name and your email address on here uh, so that if I have to get in touch with all of you for some purpose or reason, I can do that. If I already have, well, yeah, you know. <clears throat> Um, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is the the, the most famous and fullest of all the teachings that Jesus gave, it's it's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, At the very end of it, he closed that sermon by saying these words. He said that uh, any, any man or woman who hears these sayings of mine but does not do them, is like a man who built his foundation upon the sand and that the storms came and the wind and the rain descended and beat upon it and it fell and great was its fall because it was built with no foundation. But then he said, but whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's like one who dug deep and laid a good foundation. And when the storms came and the wind and the rain Uh, and beat on it, it could not knock that house down because it was built upon a rock. And uh, God's desire for for our lives is that our faith would be built upon the rock of his word, not just that we would know it. To know know it is nothing. To just be able to... um, to just be able to know things about God or whatever uh, does no good at all. It's not knowing, it's uh, doing. It's that, that these things become a part of our lives. Uh, one of my favorite books 
outside of the Bible, one of the first books I read as a young Christian is a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's written by um, a man named John Bunyan who lived in the 1600s, who spent um, a good portion of his life in prison because of his ministry. It was uh, a hostile time for Christianity and um, in England, and he was in prison for his faith. And during um, one of his 12-year prison sentences, about 11 years into it, he, he wrote this book, and it was a, a, it's a, an allegory about a man who um, leaves the city of destruction and sets forth for the celestial city, and it's all about this man Christian, and Christian represents the Christian, uh, and all the things that he battled along the way throughout his life. And it was very prophetic, very profound book. I would recommend uh, recommend it as absolute. It'll be in the library in heaven uh, if there is one, you know. Um, but one of the things that uh, in, in that book that, that I'll never forget is when one of the characters, whose name is the interpreter, and in the allegory, the, the interpreter is supposed to be the Holy Spirit, um, he gives a book to Christian's wife, who is just the female Christian, you know, in the story. And he says, take this book and meditate in it. Learn it, know it. And he says this. He says, until you have it by root of heart. Let that sink in. To have it by root of heart. And the idea is that you know God's word so well that it's a part of your life. It's a part of your heart. It becomes a part of who you are. And that's what Jesus means when he talks about the good foundation. He talks about um, building it upon it. So that's our pursuit as Christians, is that we would have a foundation and that we'd have something to build on it. And so as we begin this morning, we begin at the beginning, which is uh, being born again. When God um, first made the world, on the first day of creation, Genesis chapter 1, it says that God called light into existence. He said, let there be light or light be. And light was, there was light there. And that's all there was that first day. Uh, And then as the days progressed, it was on the fourth day that God then separated the light from the darkness. And there was a distinction that was made. And what was once only light, at least as it relates to this creation, was now divided and there was light and darkness. And God called the day or the light day and he called the darkness night. And so there was darkness and there was light and all of that took place on the fourth day. Now, ever since that time, the fourth day of creation, there have been both of those things. There has been darkness in the world and there has been light in the world. Now, when God finished the creation and God made man and he set him in the garden, God looked at the entirety of that creation and he said that all was good, that God looked at the whole thing and he said that it is good. Now, man was made. The reason that man was made was for fellowship with God. That's why God made us. It's that we might know him and that we might enjoy him forever. The world was made for us. He didn't make it as a possession in and of itself. He made it as a dwelling place for man, and man he made for him. Now, God gave man one command when he was there placed in the garden with his wife. And that command is that he was not to eat from one tree that was planted right in the midst of the garden. There were two trees in the middle of the garden. One was the tree of life, and the other one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that you're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, he said, you shall surely die. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents, represented self-governance. 
prior to man eating from that tree, he was completely governed by God. He had no concept of what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil, or what was light and what was dark, at least in a spiritual sense. He was not given the capacity to understand any of that. God was completely his leader, his shepherd. But if man would eat from that tree, he would be removing himself from God's governance and he'd be placing himself under his own. Saying, in a sense, God, we don't need you. We can do this on our own. We're able. Now, you guys know the story, I hope. Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that time, the curse of death and sin ensued upon man, and he became a free moral agent. Now, prior to the curse, before Adam and Eve ate from that tree, man was, and man still is, a three-part being. Man is... Spirit, soul, and body. And I say it in that order on purpose because that was the order of man in his right and proper state. He was spiritually alive and connected to God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. There was an unbroken fellowship that existed between heaven and earth, between man and God. The second part of man is his soul. The soul, you and I all have a soul, is the seat of the emotions. It's where we feel it's where we think. It encapsulates our mind. All of these things are the invisible part of what make us who we are. That's our soul, our ability to experience, to feel highs and lows, joys and sorrows. All of that happens in the soul. That's the soul of man. And then the third part is the body, and that is our flesh, the physical, tangible substance that we can touch and in, 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 in all the rest, the, the flesh, you know, so to speak. It is the medium that feels the pleasure that we have uh, in all of those things. And so our body is the medium wherein we can interact in a physical world. And so spirit, relating to God, soul, and body. Now prior to the curse, man was spiritually connected to God and therefore his soul was continually satisfied because he had God as his source. And thus his body was by and large irrelevant he had no physical needs as far as he could tell because he was completely satisfied in God, completely. Now, on the day that Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, he did not die physically on that day, but he did die spiritually. The spiritual connection between man and God was severed on the day that they ate of it. And man immediately, as soon as that happened, recognized for the first time in his existence a need in his soul, something lacking, something wanting. He was separated from God. And so his soul and her soul immediately began to feel empty. They realized for the first time that they were naked. There was need. There was something there where, where what was once satisfied now no longer is. And that dissatisfaction was felt in the body, in the flesh. That's where it was recognized and known. And so what happened on that day is that man was flipped upside down. Instead of being spirit, soul, and body, he became body, soul, and spirit, only the spirit was now dead. And so the only source that man could find to satisfy the soul that was still hungering for that connection was to try to do it through the body. And thus man, under the curse, and woman, when I say man, please don't think I'm being discriminatory, Man became a slave to the body. 
The body now drives what the soul needs, and he became inverted. And what was once light in the Lord was now cut off from that light, and man was under darkness. And every man from Adam and Eve all the way down to the present day is born into this world separated from God under the curse of original sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul explains that this way. He says these words. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 um, through 5, or 1 through uh, 3. He says, and you, speaking to the Christian, he says, and you he has made alive who used to be dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, that is before you knew Christ, you walked according to the course of this world. That is the curse of this world, but it's the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, that is another name for Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And now what he says in verse 3 is very important. He says, among whom, all the, the children of the world, we all had our lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature or by birth the children of wrath, even as others. So everyone who's born into this world is born into this world separated from God. And the analogy that God places upon that existence is the analogy of darkness and light. He says, Paul, in another place, he says, for you were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So apart from God, there is no light within the life. And all of that is to say this is that darkness and light exists in the world. There is darkness and there is light. There has been since the fourth day of creation. Man was created in light, but man became darkness when he fell in original sin. And thus every man and woman that is born from the time of Adam is born into this world in spiritual darkness, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of, by mind, and of the mind. And by nature, we're children of wrath, that we are born enemies of God. And that is universally true. An infant that has done nothing right or wrong is born into this world separated from God, not because they did anything wrong, but because of the curse that was passed on to them by the deeds of Adam and Eve. And that's just the way it is. We're all born into this world, dark and not light. Now, concerning you and I, concerning man and woman, God has made us, and he did this on purpose, free moral agents, meaning that he gives to us free will and he gives us choice. He doesn't violate it. He did not make us to be robots wherein he just presses a button inside of us and that we automatically do something or become something. He has made us free, and that's part of God's intention when he made man. Why did God make man? I said it earlier already, right? He made us that we might know him and that we might enjoy him forever. But God's desire, his great desire for you and I, is that we might have a love-based relationship with him. And what love demands is a choice. You cannot have love if you don't have a choice. And so when God made us, he had to make us with the ability for us to choose and to make a choice. And we wouldn't have a choice if there was only one option. And so there has to be a choice if we're going to choose God. And thus there's a choice. 
There's the choice to remain in darkness, or there's the choice to come into the light. Adam had a choice. He could remain in the light, or he could choose darkness. He chose darkness. Thank God. He then said, no, I'll choose light. <laughs> and he, he decided to come back into the light, but not everyone does. And so God uh, gives us free will. And so the whole world is filled with two classes of people in God's eyes. There are two classes. There is the saved and the unsaved. There is the dark and there is the light. And every human being falls into one of those two categories, and that's all God sees. He doesn't see male and female. He doesn't see Jew or Gentile. He doesn't see race, age, creed. All he sees is light and dark. Are you saved or are you unsaved? That's what God sees in the world. There are two roads, two paths, two gates, two cities. <laughs> you have this contrast all the way throughout the Bible. Now, if all of us are born in darkness, and we all are, then in order for a person to come into the light, something has to happen. Something has to change. There must at some point be a shift. If I once was darkness, but now I'm light in the Lord, then what is it that brings me from the darkness now into this light? It's what the Bible calls, it's what Jesus called being born again. Now, there's many names for this in the Bible. There's the word uh, regeneration, the word conversion, the word new creature or new creation versus what the old was. There's the old man versus the new man. All of those terms are used in the Bible to describe this one experience of going from darkness to now becoming light in the Lord. But the term that Jesus used to define it, and that's our highest authority, isn't it? Jesus used the words born again or being born again. And he did that in John chapter 3. And so let's look at John chapter 3 and understand exactly what this means. What does it mean to be born again or to become a child of light or to become a new creation? Uh, I'll just read a portion of the chapter and then we'll talk about uh, what it's saying. It says in verse 1, it says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews. And the same came to Jesus at night, and he said unto him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So mark that in your mind right off the, the bat, that if a person doesn't have this born-again experience, according to Jesus, then they cannot be saved. They cannot see the kingdom of God. They abide and remain in the darkness they were born into the first time. And so in verse 4, Nicodemus continuing the conversation said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus takes Jesus literally and thinks, What in the world is this crazy prophet talking about, being born a second time when you're old? And so Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, water speaks of natural birth. 
When a man or a woman is born into this world the first time, they pass through the water, the water breaks, and they're born into this world in a physical sense. Water is purely physical. And so there's a, a, a natural birth, meaning that you have to be, in order to be qualified to be saved, qualification number one is that you have to be a human-born individual. <laughs> you have to first be born of water. Anybody here not born of water? Okay, good. We've cleared that hurdle. <laughs> then we, we all are candidates, at least um, by that, that quality. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, if, in case you're wondering, can a clone get saved? The answer is no. <laughs> because they don't have a God-created soul. You know, they're not born of water. So he says, unless he's born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be born of the Spirit is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being born again, being born of the Spirit. Remember how I said before that man was created spirit, soul, and body, and that on the day of the curse, the Spirit died, and thus something has to happen to recreate or regenerate the Spirit that died under the curse. Something has to happen. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That must be born again. The spirit of man must come to life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. And then Jesus says in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it lists or where it desires, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and you cannot tell where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. So let's pause right there and just uh, encapsulate what we've seen so far. First of all, we have this man, Nicodemus. And we're told two things about this man. Number one, we're told that he is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a very exclusive group of very religious people in Jesus' day, there was only 6,000 Pharisees, uh, and that you know sounds like a big number, but when you think of it in the context of an entire nation, it's really not that large of a sum. And what the Pharisees were is that they were the spiritual or religious authority of the times. They were the pastors. They were the church leaders. They were the Bible teachers. They were the scribes and the scholars, the ones that would say, this is what God accepts, and this is what God abhors. And that authority rested almost exclusively with the Pharisees. And so you have this man who is a religious elite authority coming to Jesus. The other thing it tells us about him is that he was a ruler of the Jews. The ruler of the Jews meant that he was part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, very similar to what we would call the Senate, there was only 70 of them. Sanhedrin means the 70. And so this man, not only exclusive spiritually authoritative, but he is also exclusively politically authoritative, meaning that this is a very prominent and very important individual. And we don't know if he's coming to Jesus of his own accord or if he was kind of coerced by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin of the day to represent them in coming to Jesus in this way. But it seems to me that perhaps this is a little bit of his own accord in that he comes to Jesus at night. He's coming in a time when there aren't the multitudes around, a time when people aren't going to see him so, so, you know, so clearly and be able to say, hey, taking pictures and say, you were with them, you know, the kind of a thing. But he's coming to Jesus and he's asking Jesus an honest question. He's saying, listen, you do not fit the cutout of what we would expect a religious 
authority to be in our times and days. You're not one of us, the Pharisees. You're certainly not giving heed to our authority or our place within the nation. And yet, when we look at your life, we see things coming out of your life that we do not possess. Power, miracles, authority, love. There are things in you that we recognize to be from God, and we cannot deny it if we're honest with ourselves, that we do not possess. So what's your story? That's essentially what Nicodemus is asking Jesus here in the night. And Jesus answers the question in a most peculiar way. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot go to heaven. Now, it would seem that Jesus is answering an entirely different question than that which Nicodemus is presenting. But really, what Jesus is giving him is the answer that Nicodemus needs, not the one that he wants. He's saying, listen, Nicodemus, what's important here isn't whether or not I'm on your side. But the real question is, are you on mine or are you on God's? And if you want to be on God's side of things, on the right side of things, it doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee. It doesn't matter if you're a Sanhedrin. It doesn't matter if everyone looks at you as the authority of what's right and wrong religiously. What matters is are you born again? Two classes, light and dark. And if you are not light, then nothing else matters at all. You must be born again. And in the ensuing conversation, they go back and forth about the difference between physical and spiritual birth. And Jesus says it is absolutely essential that you be spiritually born. And then he describes the nature of that birth. How do you know if a person has been born again? Because certainly you can tell if someone's been born physically, right? I mean, the evidence is sitting right before you. We've all been born physically. But a spiritual birth is an invisible birth. So how do you know if you've been born again? The best way Jesus can describe it, he does so in verse 8 by saying that the wind blows where the wind blows. And you can't see wind. How many of you can put wind in a jar? How many of you can say, look, I've captured the wind and I'm going to show you what it looks like? None of us can do that. If I was a blinded man and you were trying to describe wind and I said, what does wind look like? You would just smirk and smile and say, I can't describe what wind looks like to you. Well, his wind must be fake then. Wind isn't real. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't draw a picture of it. So wind must not exist. You say, no, wind absolutely does exist. And you say, well, then how can you prove it to me? And the only way that you could is by pointing up to the trees on a breezy day and say, look. Or if I can't see, you could say, listen, do you hear that sound? That's the wind blowing through the leaves of a tree. You can't see the wind, where it's coming from or where it's going, but you absolutely can see the effect that it has upon something that it touches. And such is the nature of the new birth. You can't see it happen. You can't know by some proof or certificate or even baptismal sacrament. The only way that you can know is if you see the effects of the Spirit of God at work within the life. That is absolutely true. That's what the Jews were observing in Jesus. We see something happening in your life. We cannot touch it. It's intangible. But we know that you are come from God, and we know that we don't have what you have. What is it? And Jesus says, this is what it looks like when a person is spiritually alive and united to God. What you see in my life is the same thing that's available to your life and the same thing that God wants for your life if you would only be spiritually born. 
And this is the thing that Nicodemus needs to hear. Now, Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. Pick up in verse 9. So Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, and I love this, and said unto him, I'm sure with a smile on his face, Are you a master of Israel? Not just a teacher, not just a, a scribe, but a master. You're a ruler and a Pharisee. You're one of the elite of the elite religious people in, in Israel. Are you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that which we do know, and we testify of what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, and you don't believe, then how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. You say, well, why in the world is Jesus saying these things? What Jesus is saying to, to Nicodemus here is he's saying that I absolutely have the authority from heaven to speak on these matters. Though you can't understand it, though you can't attest to it or whatever, he's saying, I have been in heaven, I have come from heaven, I know heaven. He was heaven. <laughs> and so therefore, he has the authority to speak upon these things. And then Jesus describes to Nicodemus and gives him the answer to his question. Remember his question in verse uh, 9? He said, how can these things be? And here's the question. How is a man or a woman born again? How is a man or a woman born again? That's Nicodemus' question. And Jesus says, first of all, I'm a trustworthy authority to give you the answer. And he is the only one that can give the, the authoritative answer to that question. And now here's the answer. You ready for it? Verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what Jesus does here is he reaches back into a historical text that Nicodemus absolutely knew what he was talking about of a day in which Moses took a serpent, a bronze serpent, and he fastened it to a pole and then he lifted it up so that all of Israel could see what it was. What's the account that Jesus is referring to? It happened during the time that the Jews were nomads wandering in a wilderness for a period of 40 years. And during that time, every single day, God was causing bread to rain down from heaven to feed his people. And the people got sick and tired of the bread that God was feeding them with and they began to complain about it and murmur and say, our soul hates this manna. We loathe it. We've prepared it every way we can. We've eaten it every day. Would, would God please, would you just give us something else to eat? We hate this stuff. And they complained about everything that God was doing for them during that time while he was preserving and protecting them. And what God did in response to this complaint is that he lifted up his hand of protection for a season, and he allowed these serpents that were there in the wilderness, these snakes, these poisonous snakes, to come into the camp of Israel, and a great number of the people were bitten by these snakes, and the venom of it started to kill them off. Now, snake in the Bible, always a picture of who? Who do you think? That's right, okay? And the venom of that snake is a picture of the sin that gets a hold of mankind. 
And so God lifts his hand of protection. The snakes come in and the venom is infected and the people begin to die. It's a beautiful picture of the curse, isn't it? And God comes to Moses and Moses says, God, what are we going to do? All the people are dying because of these poisonous snakes. And God says, here's the solution, Moses. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take a serpent, a bronze serpent, make a serpent out of bronze, cast it, and I want you to fasten it to a pole. And then stand the pole up and erect it high enough so that the people of Israel can see it. And then tell them this, give them this message. That if they turn their head from where it is and look, just look, glance, gaze at this serpent that's upon the pole, it will neutralize the effect of the venom and the people will live. Now, any scientist that was there listening to that, any doctor, any physician, any homeopathic you know, practitioner, anyone that was there listening to that would say, that is the absolute most ridiculous solution to a problem I have ever heard in my whole life. Look at a bronze serpent on a pole that's standing in the midst of the camp, and we're going to live. But guess what? It worked. What did it take in order for a person to be saved from the venom of those serpents? Who said that? Faith. It took faith to turn their eyes from what it was looking at and to look at something that didn't seemingly make sense as a practical solution to a real big problem. It took faith, and then it took obedience because they had to believe it, first of all. That's the faith. But then they had to do it. And when they did it, they were saved. The venom stopped working. You say, well, why in the world did that work? And how in the world did that work? That venom, which is scientific, and its effect upon a, a body physiologically, which is scientific, how could that be stopped by simply looking at something that is inanimate and has no power in and of itself? Do you know why it worked? It worked because God made it work. That's why it worked. And in answer to Nicodemus' question about this new birth, how is a man born again? Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever would put their faith in him and look to him with their life, that they would have everlasting life. They would not perish, but they would have eternal life. So how is a person born again? Well, what it first of all necessitates is that there be a serpent, a curse that's placed upon a pole. The Bible says that Jesus came into this world and that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And John chapter 1, verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus lived on this earth and he lived as God in the flesh, being tempted in every way like each one of us is every day. He faced every temptation that any man could ever face. He faced the temptation to homosexuality. He faced the temptation to alcohol and drug abuse. He faced the temptation to every illicit and, and, and ungodly thing he had to. And yet he overcame every one of those temptations, never one day of his life giving in to any of them, even in his mind. 
because Jesus taught that thoughts can be sins. They're equal to actions. And yet at the end of his life, he allowed his creation to crucify him brutally. And when he was nailed to that cross, he absorbed in his body the full weight of the wrath of God and the full penalty of sin. He absorbed it in himself. So what you have is you have a sinless man paying the price for sinful deeds. That's what Jesus did upon the cross. He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became the very serpent himself and was put up upon a pole. He was nailed to a cross. And the full wrath of God laid upon him. But because Jesus was innocent, his innocence is now made available for someone else. If Jesus takes the penalty for someone else's sin, then the innocence that he rightly paid for is now available to be given to someone else. And he invites the whosoever of creation to look to the serpent on the pole by faith to put their trust in what God has provided as the solution for sin. And when a person looks with their life to the person of Christ in faith and obedience, God makes it work supernaturally that that person is born again. Their sin is placed upon Christ and his spiritual regenerative life is put into that person and they become born again. Their spirit is resurrected. They are born anew. And it works because God makes it work. That's how it happens. You say, why would God do it this way? And why does it work? What, what drove God to do it? Notice in verse 16. It's a verse that everyone has heard. John 3:16. He says, for God so loved the world. There's God's motive. That he gave That's God's heart and God's method. His only begotten son, that whosoever believes, that's God's will for us, should not perish but have everlasting life. What motivated God to this was God's great love for man. It's what motivated God to create the world and man in the first place. It's what motivated God to put his son upon a cross. And it's what motivates God to draw you and I to himself even today. It's that God loves us. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, Jesus wasn't sent here just as an example of what life was supposed to look like. Because isn't that why Nicodemus is coming in the first place? Look, we know that this is what it's supposed to look like, but we're not experiencing it. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not here just so that you can say, well, he's got what I can never have. He's the example that I'm not that I'm supposed to be that I'm not. That's not God's heart. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but he came as an example that the world might be saved. That we might have the same thing that listen, people would look at our lives and say, "Look, I've been going to church my whole life. I've had every sacrament and blessing and pro- prophecy over me and been in every church service and gone. I've done all these things religiously." But you have something that I don't. What is it? God wants us to experience that same something. What it means to be born again. He that believes on him, verse 18, is not condemned. 
but he that believes not is condemned already. You're born in darkness. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Here's the condemnation that will abide upon those that don't put their faith in Christ. That light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The reason why a person doesn't get saved isn't because they didn't have the opportunity. And it isn't because God doesn't love them and doesn't want to save them. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why a person wouldn't get saved is because they love their sin. They're in love with their darkness. They don't want to come into the light. Because listen, when God comes into a life, he changes it. That's what he does. It isn't that we reform ourselves. It's that we give God permission to come into our hearts. And what happens when light comes into a dark room? It changes, right? And when we let God into our lives, he's going to begin to clean things out. You were darkness, but now are you light in the Lord? When I gave my life to Christ 17 years ago, I didn't have any power to change myself. I tried to change myself. I tried to get victory over the things that were defeating me, and I couldn't do it. But when I came to Christ, he began to change the things in me that I couldn't change, and he did it from the inside, meaning that he didn't just reform my behaviors, and now he gave me a new motivation that worked this time, but rather he changed the desires of my heart. He began to renew the way my mind thought, and the things in my life began to change as a process over time, like a baby grows in the womb from the inside out. That's what happens when you're born again spiritually. So a person doesn't come to that new birth, and the reason is because they don't want to change. I like my sin. I like the darkness. I don't want your ways, God. And Jesus says this is the condemnation, that men were already there, but they loved the darkness rather than the light. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither do they come to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made known that they are wrought in God. And so how is it then that a person is born again? That's the, 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 the question that Jesus is answering. First of all, the payment and the provision has been made in Christ. God provided the way. Now, some people complain about that. They say, well, we wish there was some other way. <laughs> Isn't there some other way for man to be saved? Like, can I do enough good deeds? You know, can I maintain this whole knowledge of good and evil thing and kind of self-govern? And, you know, I'll, I'll do what God wants. It's, there's one way. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God that he is Lord. And there is no other way. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the suffering that he was about to endure, his word was, Father, if there's any other way that this, this cup might pass from me, if there's any other way for man to be saved that I shouldn't have to drink this cup, please, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Three times Jesus said those words, and yet the answer from heaven was no. And Jesus drank the cup. And the reason he drank the cup is because there is no other way. And in my heart, when I am tempted, or if I am tempted to wish there was some other way, I must come back to the realization that there is one way and be thankful that there is a way. 
It's through Jesus. It's been provided for and paid for by God himself in Christ. And then, then after that, after I recognize that he paid the price, now the ball's in my court. Am I willing to respond to that? Will I turn to God in faith, believing that, yes, Jesus is the way wherein I can be saved? And then will I turn? Do you you hear that word, turn? What did the people have to do in Moses' day? Turn? Do you know what word, the Bible word for turn is? Repent. That's what repent means. It means to change directions. And so if I believe in my heart, then am I willing now to follow that belief with my action of turning my life towards Christ that I might be saved? So how does that happen in practical terms? There are four things that make a person born again. The first thing that happens is that um, a person is brought under conviction. A person is brought under conviction. And what that means typically is that a person will hear a message or they'll, 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 uh, some, something will happen in their life. It happens differently for every one of us. Sometimes someone's sitting in a church service and they hear the word being spoken and something happens. There's, there's something that's getting under the surface and, and conviction is beginning to take place within the heart. An awakening is happening inside. A realization that I'm not right, that something is wrong, that I'm dead, <laughs> I'm separated from God. For me, it had took about five years for that to happen. And it took a whole bunch of Christians speaking into my life. And it took a lot of resistance and a lot of trouble. And it took a lot. I was tough, you know. But conviction comes and conviction must come into the life of anyone that will be born again. A realization that they're lost and that they need to be saved. The venom has to have an effect upon a person. And so they come under uh, that conviction. And then after that, after they um, come under conviction, then they come to the place of faith. They make the decision that they're going to give their life to Christ. I decide and I choose that I'm going to believe what God has said in, in, in inviting me to his son. Then the third thing is repentance. Now I've made the decision. Now I've got to follow through with it. So I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to change my mind concerning my sin and I'm going to change the direction of my life. I'm no longer going away from God and towards my sin, but now I'm going towards God and away from my sin. Let me correct something right off the bat. If you can catch this as part of your foundation, then you will be well served. When we come to Christ, we are not accepting Christ. You ever heard that phrase before? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Listen, you are not accepting Christ. He is accepting you. And there's a world of difference between those two things. And here's why. Because if you accept Christ, what you're insinuating is that you are inviting him to join you on your path. Meaning, okay, I'm walking down this path that Jesus already said is the broad path that leads to destruction. And I'm saying, all right, I could use some fire insurance here. Jesus, come on my path. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. I don't join your path. You join mine. The Bible doesn't, doesn't teach that we get saved so that, so that you know, Christ can be in us, although he is. It says that we're in Christ. That's the greater thing. We're in him, right? And so we're called off of the road that we were on and called to walk the narrow path that he himself is on. And so that's repentance. It's turning from my life prior to Christ and giving my complete allegiance to him. And if we think that we can walk both roads at the same time, you cannot. 
It's one or the other. That's repentance. And so repentance is part of being born again. It's turning to God. And then finally, it's conversion. And here's conversion. It's a transaction that happens between heaven and earth, which means it's invisible. There's an invisible transaction that happens in heaven and earth wherein my sin is removed from me and placed on Christ and his righteousness is removed from him and placed on me. Then in heaven, what God has is he has two charts, okay? He has one chart that has your name on it and underneath your name is every sin that you have ever committed in your whole entire life, past, present, and even the ones that you haven't committed yet. All of them, because God sees the end and the beginning at the same time. So every sin, even the thoughts, and it's page after page after page after page of sins that we've committed in our life. Every one of us has committed all these sins. Not one of us. If there was only one thing on the list, it would be equally as bad as if it's 100 pages long. But all of us have this 100-page list. And then over here, you have the second list, and on the top of that list, it just says Jesus. And under it, just blank. No sins. Nothing. It's completely white. White as snow. And when we come to God and in conversion, and we say, God, I recognize that this is my chart. This is my life. I'm guilty of every single one of these sins. And there's not one thing I can do to make up for it, to pay for it, to clean it. This is what I am. And I don't want to be this anymore. I need you to save me. And I believe that your son Jesus, who gave his life on the cross, paid for all of these sins. And I'm willing to receive that payment for these sins if you're willing to give it to me. And what God does when we say those words, or even if that's the position of our heart in truth, what God does is he takes those charts and he takes his big rubber pencil eraser and he erases the names at the tops of those charts. So he erases your name, he erases Jesus' name, and then over on your column, he writes the name Jesus. And on Jesus' page, he writes your name. And Jesus becomes guilty of every sin that you've committed. And the payment for that guilt is accredited to the cross of Christ. And the righteousness that he possesses and the standing that he holds before the Father is granted to you and I. And we are spiritually made alive in Christ. God's Spirit comes into us and we're born again. That's the change that we experience. I was just talking to one of the brothers that's actually in here today just before the session about um, a, a time that I met with a, a young woman who was um, in a real bad place. She almost killed herself with alcohol and uh, actually had flatlined on, on a hospital table and um, it was just brought back from the very brink of death. And after being um, pleaded with by her family to come in and talk to uh, one of us pastors here, uh, I sat down with her and she described what the past several years of her life had been and just a train wreck after a train wreck after a train wreck after a train wreck. And, uh, and I explained to her this gospel, this, this message, the serpent on a pole, and explained what it means to give her life. And at the end, I said, if you don't give your life to Christ, you're going to die. 
You're, you're, you're way too far down this path of darkness. You need Jesus. And she said, I know I need Jesus. I said, would you pray with me? And would you transact with heaven? And would you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior or give your life to, to, to him? be this, the Lord and Savior of her life. And she said, yes, she prayed. And I, I helped her and led her. And we, we prayed together. And she accepted Christ. And, and when we said amen, and there was a presence in the room, God was there. She breathed out. And it was utter silence. We cut the air. She breathed out. She went, I could use another one of those. That's <laughs> what so she said. Something happens. When a person gives their life to Christ, there's an effect. It's not always dramatic. It's not always a feeling. But there's a change within the life. Something happens. It's real. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says that if we believe in our heart, or I'm sorry, that if we confess, first of all, with our mouth, the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That's the transaction that I'm talking about. I believe in my heart, and therefore I confess with my mouth. And when I do that, God in heaven switches the names. I become born again. And though I cannot say, here's the mark on my arm that I'm born again physically, just like the wind is seen in its effect in the trees, there is an effect of that conversion very definitely evident within my life. And it's known by me, and it's known by others that are around me. And God is faithful to do it every time, and it works because God makes it work. So what's the difference now, in closing? What's the difference now that I'm born again? What, what's different in my life? Well, first of all, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You can write that down, look it up later, if you, or if you have an exceptional memory. Or if you email me after this, I'll send you my notes from today and you can have all these verses and things as a reminder. You know. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, and that therefore is now that we're saved, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That whereas once we were enemies of God, born into this world in darkness, now we have peace with God. And that's an incredible peace, isn't it? To be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and to not know your future and to not have your circumstances necessarily fixed, but to know that you're at peace with God. That's an incredible peace. And that is something that you have, not 10 years after, but 10 seconds after giving your life to Christ. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He grants the peace that we so crave and that we so long for. The second thing, now that I'm born again, not only do I have peace with God, but I'm also called to grow. I'm called to grow. I'm not to just take this gift of salvation and now, okay, well, it's mine. He saved me. But I'm to do something with it. I'm to grow in it. I'm to feed it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Peter writes and he says, Besides this, giving all diligence, that's a command to me, right? Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to brotherly kindness, love, or uh, add to God, godliness, and to, bro I'm sorry, add to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, 
For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you will never be barren or unfruitful in your knowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a part to play now. We're to grow in him. We're to feed this faith. We're to grow closer to God and come to a knowledge of him. And that's something that God helps us with every day in this relationship, getting to know him. And then thirdly, now that I'm born again, not only peace with God, not only am I called to grow, but I'm also called to serve him. And I want you to listen to these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And this will be the last thing, and then we'll be done. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not by works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So God has created us in Christ for good works that he has prepared before us ahead of time. And now he calls us and he says that you should walk in them. And so a part of this thing, we've been left on earth. I'm saved but I'm still present in a fallen world. Why? Why doesn't he just save me and bring me right to heaven? Because he has something for us to do here. And God's plan and what he wants to use you in in your life is as unique to you as what your face looks like or what your thumbprint is. He has individual works that he has marked out for you. And part of this walk now with him is discovering what those things are and then walking in that plan that God has for my life. And so he doesn't save us just to save us. He saves us with a purpose and with an intent. And so we're born again. And that's what it means. That's where it comes from.